healing is how we make sense of things and how we make contributions for others and share our stories. As I did my work in recovery and continue to do my work in recovery, the more that I disclose my journey and life experiences and show more vulnerability, the more freedom that comes with that from me. Welcome to the Open Exploration Podcast. I'm on a mission to connect with rule breakers, dream makers, and all around inspiring people to explore the possibilities for living a vibrant and honest life on my own terms. Hello, hello, everyone. One of the big ideas I've been exploring in this season of my life is the pressure that so many of us feel to appear successful and in control from the outside, even at the expense of a genuinely healthy and happy inner life. My guest today has a remarkable story of confronting the demons in her life and finding the courage to finally be honest with herself, her family, and her community about the pain and addiction she was struggling with, to break down the illusion that she had it all together in order to actually find healing. Kelly Ryan is a licensed marriage and family therapist who spent three decades working in special education, mental health, substance abuse, and educational consulting. She is also the co-author, along with her sister Karen, of the book Warrior Sisters. Kelly and Karen explore how the abuse they experienced as children and the patterns of abuse, addiction, suicide, and deep secretiveness in their family led them both to addiction. Kelly to a hidden and high-functioning dependence on alcohol, and Karen to a chaotic and destructive relationship with crack cocaine and other substances until well into her 50s. The book weaves together both of their stories and offers each of their perspectives and recollections along the way. Kelly and Karen are remarkably vulnerable and honest about their mistakes and traumas, but they also tell this story through the lens of hope and offer the message that anyone, no matter the age, no matter the circumstances, can find healing in their own time. In our conversation, Kelly and I talk about how she and her sister were finally able to heal after generations of trauma. We explore ways that societal pressures and the demands of the corporate world make healthy, balanced living difficult, and Kelly offers insight on how important boundaries and community are to our healing. Before we jump in, a huge thank you to Manualware for supporting the Open Exploration Podcast. Manualware is a local small business that crafts handmade products from recycled skateboards, including jewelry, tools, and accessories. Visit www.manualware.co to check out beautiful, one-of-a-kind products like earrings, bolo ties, and wine stoppers. Use code EXPLORE25 at checkout for 25% off site-wide. Again, that's Manualware. M-A-N-U-A-L-W-A-R-E dot C-O with code EXPLORE25. And now my conversation with the wonderful Kelly Ryan. so much for having me over at your lovely home today and and letting me come and talk to you about your story and about your beautiful book. Oh, well, you're welcome, and I appreciate the invitation. I really loved reading not only your story, but your story sort of intertwined with your sister, Karen. How did you and Karen decide to write this book together and sort of play off of the parallels in your story? You know, it came about, I had a career in working with adolescents and young adults and families and had retired and had been 
thinking about writing a book about a lot of my experiences and meeting some really remarkable people in recovery. And I procrastinated, procrastinated, had the idea, never did it. And I was having lunch with a girlfriend one day and she said, Kelly, your story is really between you and your sister. And I said, that's remarkable. <laughs> and it really resonated with me. So I called Karen and I asked her if she'd be willing to co-author a book with me. And she said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and that was about it. And so we set off and wrote our parts and got some really great guidance from the beginning, which was just to, to, to write until we felt like we had nothing else left to say or to write. Then the really hard part started because the content, we felt like it was divine intervention because the content really flowed and it was fun to write and we just had a great time doing it together. And then the challenge was what do we do with it and how do we make it what I believe to be Warrior Sisters became really a beautiful memoir and meaningful story of a family affected by addiction and alcoholism. And so we got a book coach and they helped us figure out how to organize it and how to take the content and make sense of it. And there's a few things that I think they just really guided us well with. And one was if it was Karen's chapter, then I would write about what was going on for me or how I was interpreting what was happening for her and vice versa. And so that really brings a lot of value for the people reading the book because, you know, we ha I have three sisters, Karen being one of them, and all four of us may have witnessed the same experiences and events and have different interpretations of them. And I've always been fascinated by family systems and it's what I, you know, did in my career and multi-generational patterns. And so to be able to have the other siblings perspective of what was happening is is really fun to me you know and i hope brings value to the reader that conversational element and sort of the relationship between you and your sister throughout the story really did come through and like you said that little blurb at the end of each chapter and giving the other the other sister's perspective it did tie things together i think what else it did for me was showed sort of this trail throughout your lives that you and Karen had a really close bond from the time that you were very young, but it also was very honest about these decades and decades, especially with Karen's addiction and your addiction for part of that as well, mm -hmm. that there were a lot of secrets and a lot of lies and manipulation, and Karen's experience might have been totally different than yours in those times. I wanted to ask you what it was like to come back together, you and Karen, and to have this experience where the whole point was to be honest and vulnerable and reflective after so many decades of that being in the dark? You know, it was really beautiful and meaningful. It was meaningful for my whole family. Karen and I, when we were young, we were so close and we looked a lot alike. People would ask if we were twins and they would ask it so often that we started saying yes. <laughs> and we felt like twins. We were really just symbiotically bonded. And, um, and particularly me, I'm very sensitive and can pick up on other people's emotions. And I kind of was that, I had that role in my family. And so 
Karen's experiences and pain and my mom's experiences and pain often affected me deeply. But when I asked Karen and she just said, yeah, sure, you know, we had no <laughs> idea or expectations of whether anything would even come of it. And uh, for her and I to be able to open up dialogue of things that we hadn't talked about for many years and also for my mom and for, for my family, my stepdad and my two other sisters, because for me particularly, I'll speak for me, was that I did not want to hurt my mom in any way. And so we all, you know, we grew up witnessing a lot of violence and my mom was a victim of domestic violence and abuse. And it's really not something that we talk about in our family and we certainly don't talk about it with my mom because we don't want to bring up hurtful things for her and so in writing the book my main concern was protecting my mom <laughs> and still you know not wanting to cause her any harm and ironically the opposite has happened so I think it's been extremely healing for the whole family my mom and I have had some dialogue that we hadn't had in you know since we've been well, probably ever since we never had. And um, my mom was seven years older than her other siblings, and so they didn't know to the extent of things that were happening for her and her marriage and her family. And they've actually talked to her since they've read the book and said, Rose, we had no idea, and we're so proud of you, and, you know, kind of where our whole families come from that. And so I, I think it's been very healing for the whole family. That was a theme that really came through for me as well was how you talked about finally recognizing your own issues with addiction mm -hmm. and then moving through that into actual recovery from, from that addiction. Mm -hmm. And the same in the way that Karen talks about it is that theme that you have to confront the truth. Mm -hmm. That idea of building up these walls and these barriers and these lies to protect ourselves. It's so common and so understandable, but it's not how we heal. Yes. And what's so ironic is for me, you know, I was high functioning and very successful in my career and making good money. And I never really had any significant consequences for drinking in terms of, you know, legal consequences or losing a job or uh, a marriage or, or things like that and so looking good on the outside but struggling on the inside is is what my pattern was and things that held me back in early sobriety or coming to terms with that or even being public about being an alcoholic and being in recovery was fear of people's perception of me and as I did my work in recovery and continue to do my work in recovery the more that I disclose my journey and life experiences and show more vulnerability, the more freedom that comes with that from me, which is to me just a contradiction and really ironic, but also the gifts that come from that in the relationships that I get to establish with other people. That was one of the main reasons that I really wanted to talk to you was that kind of element of your story that you are so honest about these points where your life looked really good and looked really successful and looked really solid but it didn't actually feel that way mm -hmm. and I think so much of my purpose in this podcast and in the community and 
in this sort of exploration in my own life is to try and build a life that is genuinely, authentically meaningful and feels aligned. And so I'd love to hear from you. Obviously, being really honest and being really vulnerable were huge parts in breaking through to a life that actually felt good on the inside, didn't just look shiny and bright on the outside. Mm -hmm. What does that look like for you now? How do you continue to build that life and support that life where you are genuinely healthy and genuinely happy or genuinely however you are, (laughs) right? I guess, how do you support that life where you feel just as authentic in your inner life as you do in your outer life? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a continuous struggle and journey, you know, for, for me anyway. I work a 12-step program. I'm 16 years sober, and I, I, I still work a 12-step program and will continue to do so. I have such beautiful relationships that have come from that program that I feel like I'll never be alone, even if I walk into a total room of strangers. <laughs> and so that brings me comfort, and I also know where to go when I am struggling, and I have the tools to know how to work through things. For me, mentorship is really important. Finding someone that I look up to, that I want to be like, that has the spark that I want, that you know, I'm always seeking those people out in my life, and they come to me in different ways. You know, I talk about that in the book. My old boss was one of them. A beautiful friendship came from that, and I also get it from you know my spiritual path because I think that that's what was lacking for me and looking good on the outside and struggling on the inside. You know, my values and what I wanted in my life weren't consistent with what I was doing in my life, and so it was causing a lot of conflict. And when I really get to the core of what was that about, it was you know a spiritual deficit, and a lot of that was rooted in childhood trauma, and. It took years and probably will continue. I'm 58 years old, and I think every now I think, you know, I'll feel a sense of shame and I'll think, well, darn it, I thought I was through that, you know, and that happened when I was eight or 10 or 12 or 35 or, you know, but I, I'm not sure if we're ever completely free of those things. And it's hard work, it's really hard work. I mean, um, for me to stay sober, for me to want to continue to grow, for me to look for mentorship, but. So much freedom has come from sobriety, and I don't look to want to numb myself any longer, whether it's through alcohol or any other substances. I don't look to, it's not my go-to anymore, nor, nor do I desire to do that. I just want to, you know, deal with life on life's terms and um, making a contribution to others is really important to me. That's why we wrote the book. You know, I seriously had Karen dead and buried. I, especially because of my professional experiences, the fact that I knew a lot about crack cocaine and opiate addiction and what she was doing at 53 and all the interventions and things that we had tried prior, I did not think there was any way in the world she could come back from her addiction. And I cannot tell you how painful that was for my family and for me to watch someone just slowly killing themselves. And I wanted relief for my family and for me and particularly my mother. And I really thought that um, maybe death would be the better path for her. And 
that's not easy to say and I put it in writing because it's not easy to write a lot of people are in that kind of pain and they don't know how to talk about it or where to go to talk about it or what to do for a family member and so that's partially why we wrote warrior sisters is to provide hope and I guess you know the way out for us was a spiritual awakening and um you know a 12-step program and accepting others others people's support and now you know our job is making a contribution and giving back to those that are still suffering so you and Karen throughout the book do a really beautiful job of laying out the history of trauma in your family I think a lot of times when somebody sees addiction and doesn't understand the first question is like well why would somebody choose this path or, or why would somebody go down this path Karen talks about people asking her that basically saying you seem like such a nice lady why did you get to this and I think that that's so important to dig into a little bit that this started generations and generations ago in your family. Mm-hmm. And it's just now that you and Karen are doing this work and having these tools. I remember, vividly remember, saying to myself that I would never, ever be like my father, who was a daily drinker and an alcoholic and died of cirrhosis of the liver. And I would never be like my older sister, ever. And I never drank in high school, never experimented with any kind of you know marijuana or drugs because I didn't want to cause my mom any additional pain and saw what it did for my sister and my father, and I thought, I'll never be like that. And then all of a sudden, I'm in my early 40s, and I look in the mirror, and I go, how did I get here? You know, I am I am them. I am an alcoholic. And it, it snuck up on me, and I never saw it coming. So I was a seeker, and I'm still a seeker. And you know, in my early 20s, I went to Adult Children of Alcoholics, and a whole new world opened up to me around why I felt the way I felt and the roles of my family members, and it was like an aha moment, and I started studying that, and some of the layers of the onion were peeled back. Then I got my master's degree and studied psychology and became a licensed marriage family therapist, and more layers of the onion were peeled back. But still, all along, for me, drinking was fun. You know, in my when I went to college and in my early courtship and relationship with my husband and friends, it was really fun for a long time until it wasn't. I didn't, you know, black out every time I drank. I didn't roll cars. I didn't get DUIs like my sister had. You know, so I didn't think I really had a problem. And then all of a sudden, you know, it just snuck up on me and here, you know, here I was. 15 years into my marriage and my husband wanting to leave me and having struggled with it for maybe, you know, I had some recollection about nine years that I had a drinking problem. I wasn't willing to call myself an alcoholic at that point. So anyway, with trauma, whatever you're avoiding, I guarantee you it's easier to walk through it. (laughs) I guarantee you it's easier to walk through it. You know, I think with my father being abusive, I didn't even, I'm a trained professional, I didn't understand why I could be 40 or 50 and still feel not worthy. Mm-hmm. You know, when I've, I've, and I've accomplished so much, and I've done this, and I've, done, I've helped, you know, literally over a thousand families, you know, I've dedicated my life to service. How could I 
you know, people like me. You know, it's, like, it's like Stuart Smalley. You know? That's like an old Saturday Night Live skit. But, um, but you know, and how could I still not feel worthy? That 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 was rooted in being told I wasn't good enough, and you know, that's you know, it, it takes a life to, for me. It's like, well, why would a dad? not want anything to do with his children. What's wrong with me? You know, why aren't I lovable? Why why was I abandoned? Why were we all abandoned? You know, how could someone leave and create a whole new family and act as if you never existed? You know, so for me, I can't say for others, but that stuff ran really deep. Those are patterns or messages that I was given in terms of generational patterns. You know, my father too, I actually, forgave my dad through a lot of work. What I realized, but I do think it takes time and maturity. I mean, children do not have the emotional ability to understand that it's not about them, Mm -hmm. but it's not about them, (laughs) you know? And I think that that's the, if I could, you know, if anybody's listening that has those issues of abandonment or, you know, rejection or abuse, is it's not about them And, and, and it wasn't their fault. You know, as a child, it it wasn't about me. In adulthood, I could reflect and have some compassion and empathy for what it must have been like to be 23 and have four children and married, you know. So, but you can't have that kind of um, insight when you're a small child. So keep peeling back the layers of the onion. Keep asking for support and seeking and keep working at it. It does get better. But avoidance is not helpful through anesthetizing myself you know through alcohol particularly for me it was alcohol or drugs and but I didn't have the awareness that that that's really that it was rooted in trauma or Mm -hmm. that that's really what I was running from for many many years yeah there's a huge lesson at the heart of that and I think so often in society still and certainly for you know generations in the past the message has always been it's not that big of an issue. Buck up, move on. Why are you so sensitive? You don't need to feel so hurt. Don't show your emotions. Yes. And I think what we are learning and what you're talking about is that there is this really, really deep need to feel our feelings, to recognize the hurts in our life so that we can heal from them. Yes. And not just like you were saying, not just cover them up or numb them. Yes but to face them head on yes, and to say this hurts and that's okay. Yes, yes. And the other family member or loved one doesn't have to agree with it, mm-hmm. you know, or have to understand it because it is what it is and we feel what we feel. And there's no, that's the other thing that I've really learned is there's no right or wrong or good or bad. You know, um, it's how I feel about a particular situation person or event and you know I mean I was I was definitely raised with don't feel that way why are you so sad everything you just said you know and so you learn I learned to stuff it and not say much and you know keep my feelings to myself yeah and keep performing at this very high level Mm -hmm. without ever showing that anything was wrong yeah You and Karen, in the foreword of the book, you talk about this unresolved trauma that led to the addiction, and you also talk about 
just the demands of daily life and <laughs> the corporate culture that we have and so many of these other sort of seemingly mundane things that also contributed to the addiction in both of your lives. There was a particular part of your story that really stood out to me. You were in your young 30s and you were the executive director of a group home for adolescent boys. And you said basically you were on duty 24-7 for three years until you fizzled out. Mm -hmm. And thinking about regardless of somebody's history, obviously you had all of these other inner hurts and traumas that deserved and needed your attention and your time and your energy. But I think for anybody in that state of just running on empty and burning the candle at both ends, you're going to fall on whatever crutch is there for you. And it sounds like that was sort of a turning point in your relationship with alcohol as well, if I'm not mistaken. And I think just bringing some compassion to the fact that we all, when we are like pushed to our brink in that way, of course we're going to fall into a crutch. And so I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the ways that we recognize it's not us. Society has this wrong. That kind of weight shouldn't be on anyone. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder, I guess, what shifts you would like to see in terms of corporate culture or those sort of stressors and demands of daily living to make this a more hospitable world for us to be human. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't, give myself a hall pass around that because I, I, you know, I think there certainly were lots of other choices for me as well. I mean, balance comes to mind, you know, right away, regardless of whether I was 30 or 50, it's balance and, and, and self-care and how do I take care of myself. And, you know, I didn't have healthy tools to do that. And so, You know, I'm not really sure how to answer that for other people because our society with, you know, 24-7 connection to technology and texting and expecting immediate responses and, I mean, I had a lot of responsibilities, but I had a pager, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. it's like now, now, you know, if you get texts, you, you know, people expect an immediate response and if you don't get one, they think something is wrong and I think that's wrong in and of itself around our society. You have a right to, you know, I my I just told my mom and uh, my stepdad, I put my phone on mute at 10 o'clock at night. And they said, well, what if something happens? You know, what if, what if something happens to mom at 2 a.m.? I said, well, what am I going to do at 2 a.m.? You know, you're in Texas. I'm in Colorado. What am I going to do at 2 a.m.? I'll find out when I wake up at 6 or 7 a.m. No, <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound cold, but there's not going to be a darn thing I can do in the middle of the night for some, a relative that lives in another state, and I'm going to give myself permission to turn to put it on mute or put it in a different room. Absolutely. As I was telling that story about you in your 30s and that job, it was kind of it struck me that... I wish that that was such a wild story and it was an exception, but I think you're right that that has become more and more the norm. The idea of being accessible at all times, being connected to especially our work lives, Mm -hmm. but -hmm. our social lives, our other responsibilities at all times Mm -hmm. as well. And that is such an important point that we absolutely have the right to protect our peace. Yes, yes. And when you're a compassionate person or you're in a helping profession or 
you know, it's very hard to do that. When I had my placement services for, you know, at-risk youth, when I first started my business, I would take weekend calls, you know, evening calls, and these are crisis-driven situations where children are needing to be out-of-home placement. So they were, you know, suicidal or overdosing or, you know, really life-threatening circumstances. And I felt that I had a unique set of skills to walk parents through the placement process and help them get services for their children. And I was really effective at it. At the same time, when people would say, what do you do to take care of yourself? or talk about self-care, I have to admit that I didn't really know what that was. (laughs) And if you're a teacher or you're a therapist or you're in a helping profession or you're a caretaker, it probably comes fairly natural for, or it did for me, that that's, I always, even as a kid, I always wanted to help other people, always. And so that has been a value. It's been probably part of my personality and temperament, and it's been part of my professional training. And so the question then became, what is self-care for me and how do I identify that? And I will say the awareness and in getting healthy, sometimes it's an avoidance on, it was an avoidance on my part that if I was helping other people, I never really had to stop long enough to deal with the discrepancies in my world or really take a look at how out of balance I was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, conscious, but in hindsight, I could see that, you know, if I'm burnt out or, or helping others 24-7, then I, I'm really not being of service. I'm not being my best self to them or myself. I really do want to circle back to this sort of discussion of boundaries mm-hmm. and how you found that for yourself mm-hmm. and started to create really healthy boundaries in your life because mm-hmm. that was a beautiful theme in the book as well. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a good point too to go back and just talk about your career. You have this sort of incredible career with so many different facets to it. You started as a special education teacher. Can you tell me a little bit about that role, what you loved, why you decided to leave it and what came next? Well, I worked in a self-contained classroom, and this was back in the 80s when they used to call it learning disabled and emotionally disturbed, and now they don't. It's learning differences now, which I really am glad for that change of label. So I had a classroom with learning differences and emotionally disturbed kids, and I really loved it. And one of the things with learning differences or emotionally disturbed or labels in general I mean, I do think that testing and labels are helpful because it provides a roadmap, so to speak, but it doesn't define the person. Mm -hmm. And I think for sometimes for kids and parents, those labels can be devastating. But I didn't see the kids that way. I saw them as highly capable. I saw them as perhaps wearing a different set of glasses, but being able to really achieve just may not be in the traditional way and so I really learned how to encourage them and motivate them and to identify those strengths and work from a strength-based perspective with kids and I loved it. At the same time I did that for about six years and I also realized though I could just see the dynamics of the family and really wanted to make a stronger impact 
with the whole family, not just the child. And so I went back and got my master's at Chapman University and then in psychology, and it took about six years to get licensed because I had to do 3,000 hours of face-to-face work with clients and under supervision and then also take oral and written exams in California. And so I finished my master's in 1990, got licensed in 1996. And that was a really valuable experience because in my master's program they required 10 hours of counseling. And that's really where I learned a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder and domestic violence and a lot of things both from working through some of that and identifying it in personal therapy, but also kind of being professionally trained around these types of diagnoses and what they mean and what it it looks like and all that kind of stuff. So it was a really exciting time and learning curve um, personally and professionally. It's also when I got married and met my husband Mm -hmm. and all that. And then I just had a great career. I ran an intensive outpatient program for teens and they came to me for four hours a day, and we would do group therapy, family therapy, tutoring. That mentor was just fantastic and taught me so much and was magical and had one-liners, and the kids loved him, and he's probably my favorite person on (laughs) earth. Um, And that was really a wonderful experience. So I did a lot of clinical services with adolescents, young adults, and and family systems. And then I burned out clinically and started to do business development and marketing for residential treatment centers. And so I would reach out to referral sources like psychiatrists and therapists in schools and counselors and let them know about our continuum of services for teens. And felt like I was still making a difference because I was able to use my clinical skills but didn't have to be in the trenches doing the work. And the really fun part of that was that I represented wilderness programs and residential treatment centers that had all experiential components. And so I did a live cattle drive. I did high-low ropes courses. I did equine therapy. I've done backpacking. I've done whitewater rafting. um, And I did all that with kids. And so that was a blast. It really showed me so much about experiential therapies for teens and young adults because I think that's what really works. I mean, cognitive therapy is good too, but kids sometimes, you know, you can say, how are you doing? Fine. (laughs) What's going on with you? Not much. You know, so, so, but you get a kid out on a, you know, on the river or you get them doing something with a horse, then you can really get some things accomplished in a way that doesn't have to be so structured Mm -hmm. and traditional and that is what I believe really works with kids. Wow what cool experiences to get to have as a clinician and to get to sort of see that healing with kids. Yes and so then I launched my GPS family Mm -hmm. consulting you know it was providing guidance purpose and solutions for families to help them choose the right types of centers for when they needed out-of-home placement. So every professional experience I had over a 30-year period really led me to open my own business in 2010. I closed it in 2020, but that 10 years of 
all of those professional experiences really led me to be able to help families and assist them in crisis-driven situations and get the right resources for their kids. You and Karen write at near the end of the book that as you reflected on your journeys, you can see how you said these hardships and pain have been healed and then used for a larger purpose. Yeah. I think looking at your career especially and then Karen's career later on, which we'll talk about too, it's really clear to see how kind of your own personal understanding and your own personal grief might have played into your ability to help others. Do you think, looking back, that you would have had that same career path if you hadn't had the childhood experiences that you had? Absolutely not. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that I shared with my mom because she carries some guilt and, you know, feelings around the domestic violence and some of the abuse that we witnessed and you know we harbor no bad feelings about that and honestly if it didn't occur or if my dad you know wasn't a raging alcoholic (laughs) I wouldn't have the same perceptions or experiences that I've had to bring to my work with families and again it's a delicate you know balancing act because no one gets out unscathed from life you know (laughs) Whether it's grief and loss, whether it's a tragic accident, whether it's addiction and alcoholism, you know, none of us get out unscathed, so to speak. And so I think that for me, finding meaning in the hardships that I have experienced just through life's journey is what life's all about. It's finding meaning. It's it's being able to make a difference. It's being able to make a larger contribution. You know, those things have certainly come from the, the trauma and abuse that I suffered as a child. And, you know, not everyone is able to reconcile that. And, you know, some people suffer all their lives. And so, again, I just encourage people to continue to, to seek and get help. And sometimes I talk to people and they'll say, well, I've been seeing my therapist for 13 years well, maybe you should look for a different therapist. You know what I mean? So <laughs> maybe it's time for yeah, a different yeah, breakthrough. Yeah, maybe it's time for a different perception or perspective or experience. And I, I hope that doesn't come across critical, but you know, if something's not working, look for something else. Mm-hmm. And or if you're seventy five percent there and you're discouraged, look for something else. You know, shake it up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I We'll say that the overall sort of tone of this book and especially the feeling at the end of it was really one of inspiration. And this message came across loud and clear that anyone can heal and that there's there's hope there. I will also say that there are parts in this book that were absolutely heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And thinking about your story and so much that was taken from you in your childhood and sort of this experience of not getting to be the child in a lot of ways looking at Karen's story and her so clearly seeking help and acting out in ways that were saying this is not okay I'm not okay and then rather than getting that help getting all of these labels and these diagnoses and this medication and all of this stuff so there is kind of that perspective of what was taken from each of you But I think that there, even more than that, is this perspective of it doesn't matter if it takes 20 or 30 or 40 or, in Karen's case, 53 years, healing is possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
humor has <laughs> been so uh, very helpful in our family. And, you know, what might be really painful for someone else, we can kind of laugh about it. And it's really not <laughs> funny, and it is very sad. But humor has been very helpful to us in our family. But it is true. And the, the piece that was true, you know, what was taken, you know, I can see that now in hindsight. Certainly, I, I choose to focus on the, I guess, the positive things at, at this point. And it was, it was, some of it was very hard to write. You know, mm-hmm. The Nut House, for example, Karen's chapter, The Nut House. And she said she affectionately called it The Nut House. Well, any we'll say normal in quotes, family or parent reading that about a 15-year-old, you know, being in restraints in a, in a psychiatric hospital facility and being doped up. And it is horrid. It's just horrid. But Karen now, I mean, I think she's been so healed that we actually joke about it. <laughs> it's really not funny, but we joke about it. And I have to say, though, now, because I was always so serious and I still am very serious, <laughs> but <laughs> but I like to tap into that childlike, you know, person now, and I give myself permission to do that. And it's not really something that I even recognized because I didn't know how to identify with it, you know. But if you see me see a bird or a squirrel or a butterfly or a deer, or you'll see me completely, you know, act like a two-year-old, and I oh, love it. You know, I yeah. That's so great. So some of that I'm reliving now or allowing myself to experience now, you know. And Karen, she goes into women's jail and she does groups. She brings people to get baptized. She goes to uh, where she went to rehab and runs groups. So she really has made a contribution in her sobriety that is really meaningful for people. You know, healing is how we make sense of things and how we make contributions for others and share our stories in in meaningful ways, hopefully. Wow. This is a beautiful time to kind of circle back to that piece of, of setting boundaries as part of your own healing. You talked about that role that you had even as a kid of sort of being the parent, being the one that was in control, being the one that knew the answers. And then especially as you became a clinician and had this professional background, Karen up through her fifties, you know, was really, really struggling in deep, deep addiction. Mm -hmm to lots of different substances and you for a long time played that role of being you know the person to call the Mm -hmm. one who was really trying to help in any way that you could what was that process like for you to finally set boundaries and recognize that you could not heal your sister unless she was able to open herself up to that and be willing to heal as well right right and it took a lot of hard knocks along the way because it you know, we tried, our family tried, and particularly me, because I had a lot of contacts with national recovery centers that Karen would call me and ask me to get her help, and I would get a bed set up, and I would talk to the CEO, and I would get financial discounts, and then she would ghost me <laughs> and not call back. But but I was willing to do anything as well as any family member to do anything to, to get her help and support. And again, peeling back the layers of the onion, it was a process of me through a lot of pain, really emotional pain, of how to begin to set a boundary that's going to work for me. And that 
it's just really interesting because I can't talk about the boundaries I set without, you know, talking about my mom, my relationship with my mother because we were so close and so enmeshed in many ways that when I was really, I had had probably five years sober and Karen was driving us, us insane and she would call in psychotic states, make no sense, ramble about, you know, the FBI tapping her phone or going to the emergency ward and pulling out her hair and, yeah, you know, just crazy stuff. And every conversation I had with my mother was, have you heard from Karen? How did Karen sound? What is she doing? How can we reach her? And, you know, my stepdad calling me saying, your mother is crying herself to sleep at night. What can you do? You know, and as if there was something that I could do about that. So it was really hard. And I finally, I got counsel. I called friends that were in recovery. And, you know, I said to them, I need to get some peace. I'm going crazy. And my mom and I are fighting because she wants to handle it differently than I want to handle it. And I didn't get sober to feel this way, to feel the level of chaos and disparity and lack of hope around Karen's drug use and psychosis to, to be like this. I'm, I'm going to relapse. You know, I'm going to relapse. I can't take it. The first boundary I set with my mom was that I told her that I loved my mom and I loved Karen, but I wanted my relationship back with my mom, that every conversation we had was about Karen and that I didn't want to talk about Karen anymore when I talked to my mom. And I said, if I want to hear about Karen, I'll ask about Karen. And I also knew to approach it in the way that it was important for my sobriety because my mom was really supportive and proud of my sobriety. And I knew that if she understood why it was challenging my sobriety that she might be more willing. So she did it. <laughs> she, and I say that because we didn't have a lot of boundaries in our home. And so when I, when I gave her this boundary, she listened. And it was really a great shift and an easy shift to make. And it was, it was just me giving myself permission to make the request. And one thing I want to say about boundaries is I always thought that they were like, a, you know, you draw a line in the sand and then that's it. You know, they're not, they're pliable, they, they get to shift, you can change your mind, you know, but the boundary is for the person that sets it. And just because I set a boundary doesn't mean that my mom was going to listen, but she did listen and it was great because then we got our relationship back and it wasn't just dependent upon Karen and what was happening in her life. The other big boundary that I set was with Karen because I thought it was just absolute insanity to be taking her phone calls and having psychotic conversations with her and trying mm -hmm. to have a linear conversation with somebody that was not in their right mind. And it was also clear to me that we had tried many things, uh, formal intervention, you know, treatment interventions to get her help and she didn't want it. And so when she called me, Again, I had gotten counsel, and I had told my mom I was going to do this. My mom was not happy with me. She felt like I was abandoning my sister. Those were the messages I was getting. I, my mom didn't come right out and say that, but I know my mom really well. And it was like, well, you're going to abandon your sister. You're giving up on her. So there was some dynamics within the family to 
things that I also had to work through that were additional pressures in being willing to set this boundary. So when Karen called me, I said, Karen, it's always great to hear from you. I love you. Do you want help for, for your drug problem? And you can imagine how that went over with Karen. <laughs> the first time she yelled and screamed and said she didn't have an effing drug problem, and that was it. Called the second time, Karen, it's great to hear from you. I love you. Do you want help from your drug problem? Not much better. Hang up. <laughs> Third time was a charm, and she stopped calling me. And really, you know, I didn't know what the consequence of that was going to be of, of me setting the boundary of, of, you know, what I knew was that taking psychotic phone calls from her was not helpful. Yeah. It was not helpful to her, and it was not helpful to me. And she probably quickly forgot about them, and I went on for days wondering if she was safe and if she was going to be alive the next day. And so I had to do something to protect myself and you know that was a great guidance that I got and it and it it worked for me because by telling my mom I didn't want to talk about her and by you know letting Karen know that I didn't want to talk to her unless she wanted help but I loved her regardless it, it brought me some peace in my life and that's really what I was looking for and what I needed because I didn't get sober to live like that and so many lessons came out of those boundaries and also with my mom because what I realized was you know I'm not a mom my mom's a mom my mom has four children <laughs> and that she had the right to deal with Karen any way she wanted to you know I could give her advice as a professional I could give her advice as a person in recovery I could not give her advice as a mom with a child and some of the conflict that we had was because she wasn't doing it my way or the way that I suggested she do it what I learned from that is she had the right to do it any way she wanted to. And I had the right to do it any way I wanted to as a sister. And it doesn't have to be one way. Mm -hmm. So what I try to tell people is get 10 suggestions. And if you're willing to do one or two of them, it's going to change your world. You don't have to do all 10. And you have to do what feels right for your heart and feels right for you. My mom even told me years later, Kelly, everything you said, you were right. I just couldn't do it. You know, and those are those are beautiful lessons. But I guess, you know, in terms of boundaries, like I said, get guidance, seek support and, you know, try one or two or three things that you're able to do that's consistent with what your heart feels is right, uh, because there's nothing more painful than watching a loved one kill themselves slowly. And I know that I know that. So I have great compassion and empathy for for family members and you know, I think that's what Warrior Sisters really, in some ways, I think it's going to support family members of people that are still using and maybe give them some support and some guidance. Yeah, I think that parallels with one of the other messages that came through really strong in the book, which is that all of us heal in our own time and in our own way. I was sort of chuckling because there is this parallel between you and Karen. You first went to a 12-step program in, in 1996, mm -hmm. is that right? Yes. But didn't get sober for another nine years yes that that was like your first step but it wasn't quite your time to heal apparently and Karen talks about going to 12-step programs as well and mm -hmm. your initial response was you know I don't fit in here I'm not like the other people in this room 
because nothing catastrophic has happened in my life. Mm -hmm. And Karen Mm -hmm. writes about having the exact opposite feeling like, okay, I don't belong here. I don't belong in this room because I'm too far gone. Too much catastrophic stuff has happened in my life and I'm beyond helping. Yes. What a (laughs) mind blowing (laughs) parallel there to recognize that comparison to others is probably not helpful in our, in our healing journey, recognizing that wherever we are at, we can heal wherever we are at. There are steps to move forward is probably a lot more helpful. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's funny because, you know, as they say, when you're ready, the teacher will appear, right? So, and, and it, that is a common experience that people will go to 12 step meetings and they'll say, I don't relate to the people in the rooms. I didn't like it or whatever, you know, I didn't have the same experiences. And I had that experience because I wasn't ready. You know, when I was ready, one of the things, the things that they say is look for the similarities, not the differences. I love that because when I looked for the similarities and not the differences, what I saw was human beings struggling to, to get better and everybody seeking a solution and also a strong desire to help others. You know, it's really a beautiful thing to have someone reach out their hand to you. It makes me cry every time. To reach out their hand to you for no other reason than wanting to just support you. I mean, and I would, I was suspect from that, of that. Now I'm that person. I mean, I hope I'm that person for others. But I was suspect of that, like, what do they want from me? You know, what, what, what do they want? Why are they being so nice? Surely there's an agenda here. Really, there's not. And, you know, I talk about it in Warrior Sisters, but the ladies hugged me on the way in, hugged me on the way out, and really didn't require anything of me. And that's a beautiful thing. So I'm just, you know, eternally grateful. I get really emotional about it. And I'll say another thing about boundaries with that is it's amazing to me that a room full of perfect strangers had to help both Karen and I. It was not family members who could do it. So honestly, for family members, I say get out of the way. (laughs) You know, I mean, and that that I don't mean it in a negative way, but we all we all try to intervene and support and help under the guise of helping when a lot of times it's really interfering, you know. I would have done anything to get Karen into treatment, but she wasn't ready. And frankly, as her sister, we had the dynamics of, well, you think you know more because you're sober, or you think you know more because you're a therapist, or you know, you think you're better than me. I mean, she didn't say it, but those undercurrents, or jealousy, or whatever it is, and it wasn't me who could help her when she was ready. It had to be a perfect stranger. And same thing with me when I was ready, it had to be a perfect stranger. Not that families aren't huge support systems. I mean, my, my, our families are, my family was a huge support system. My mom and stepdad send me a charm every year Mm -hmm. on my sobriety date and it'll say courage year one or, or whatever, you know, and they don't really, even understand addiction even after having two children that are sober now but they support us in our sobriety and my mom always recognizes my sobriety date and it brings tears to my eyes every year and from pure joy 
and happiness. So families certainly are really instrumental and important, but sometimes they do need to kind of let go and get out of the way and let someone else take the reins that might have a more objective viewpoint and not be emotionally invested in the outcome. I wanted to talk about this scene in the book when Karen talks about being in Estes Park with the family Mm -hmm. and this first time of having this feeling of, oh, this is what a peaceful, non-chaotic, sober life can feel like. And I just felt that in my whole being. Oh, this is possible. Mm -hmm. I never knew that this is possible. So I wonder if you can describe a little bit that transition from feeling like you needed alcohol as this way to cover up the pain or to escape from it and the transition into breaking into this new possibility where there could be real healing and real peace. A lot of peace comes from surrender. And I didn't really understand the true meaning of what surrendering means or surrendering my alcoholism to a higher power or what that meant. Um, I always thought the word surrender meant give up, you know, and wave the white flag. And for me, it meant learning a different way. And through surrendering came true freedom. There, that's such a contradiction. You know, Karen thought that she was so in control. You know, she had to do things her way. And she said she was so free when she was using drugs or that she was doing it her way or that no one could make her, you know, surrender and do it differently. Well, after being arrested 12 times and held without bail, uh, she was stripped of everything, of all of her freedoms, and had some time to truly look in the mirror and learn what surrender means. That's one thing in our family. We were always really close no matter what happened, no matter, we always had each other's backs. But, you know, there was a lot of conflict and a lot of chaos and a lot of boundaries and a lot of time that went by. And gratefully, we're all forgiving people because I feel bad for some families where people get sober, but they've burned so many bridges, their family members don't want anything to do with them anymore. And I don't I don't blame either side for that. And that easily could have happened in our family. We just chose to move forward and move on and had a strong bond and wanted to be be free. I think that you circled around some important points that that we don't necessarily get to be in control mm-hmm. <laughs> of our own healing mm-hmm. and trying to hold on to control and trying to say I have this all under my own control. I know exactly what I'm doing. Don't worry about me. That sort of prideful and in control persona yes has to break down and crumble yes. in order to really heal that there's a real humbleness to it. Yes. And control is a great word because, and expectations, you know, those are the two, two things that I still work on, you know, control and expectations. Um, when I, usually when I'm upset or disappointed or it's, it's because I had a certain expectation that didn't get met, whether it's in a relationship or an event I'm going to or whatever. And, you know, I'm reminded by good people who give me great guidance is, you know, it's all about my expectations. And if I was able to let go of an expectation, usually when I'm able to let go of expectations around something, it usually comes out 10 times better than I could have ever (laughs) imagined. But when I go in with expectations and it doesn't happen, then I set myself up for disappointment. So, um, 
or really believing that I have control over much. You know, I have control over maybe what I wear or what I eat. I don't have control <laughs> over much else. <laughs> so um, those are gifts, you know, to really be able to, and I have to practice it every day, you know, and, and do it over, do overs when I hit the, hit the restart button when I don't do a very good job of it. Yeah, it's beautiful. So there's something about allowing ourselves to be more free, mm-hmm. to be less in control of the outcomes and surrendering to whatever is going to unfold. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with me and for writing this beautiful book with your sister. It is a really inspiring story. And even for people who don't necessarily struggle with addiction in the same way, I think that there are so many lessons about healing and about being honest with ourselves and about relationships. And I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Can I say to anybody that might be interested to look on kellyandkaren.com, there's lots of fun family photos and a place to purchase Warrior Sisters and some other fun information about events. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Open Exploration Podcast. If you'd like to support our work even further, it really does make a difference to review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or you can donate at our website, openexploration.org. The Open Exploration Podcast is produced by me, Lily Worthen. The voices that you'll hear at the very end are my nieces and nephew. Thank you to Poddington Bear, John Sib, and the other unlisted artists for freely sharing your music that brings this podcast to life. Thank you. Love to you all, and until next time, happy exploring.